We've been recording for five minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Pew! <laughs> we are doing another mini episode today. This is actually Todd's super good idea. I am super good, an idea. And you're not fucking up our audio today. Nice job. <laughs> I still haven't let that go. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So our last episode, we both mentioned documentaries and we both wanted to actually go and watch them. Thank you, Bubba, for barking in the background. Yeah, there is a one-year-old puppy in the background. Happy birthday, Bubba. Happy birthday, Bubba. Hmm. Well, I was thinking about it and our last episode was probably the, one of the more disjointed ones because somehow usually even though we don't tell each other what our subject's going to be, they end up kind of lining up. And last time I was like, these are very unrelated. And then we kind of realized they're very different stories. One's way more positive than the other, but these are both British stories. Little known British stories that are British part of, a large part of British culture. That both have really good documentaries about them. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting that both of our stories happen to be British documentaries. Mm-hmm. And so today we're going to watch the two movies we talked about in the episode and uh, kind of pause between the films and uh, give our various reactions. Can you tell I'm terrified to watch yours? Sarah's going to be crying a lot. Yeah, we're watching his first and guaranteed I'm going to start drinking Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to get over this. And then we'll watch the Long John Baldry documentary and cheer ourselves up. Right. Uh, It's way happier. So the first movie we're going to watch today is called Hillsborough. It was made in 2014 by ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary series, directed and produced by Daniel Gordon. Okay. So we're going to go peep that and we'll be back in a minute. I dig it. Okay. Thoughts? <laughs> I am raw. Hmm. That was a very good documentary. Very well done. Um, very respectful to the families of the victims. Very well edited. I'm just trying not to start crying again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is very, very Dear Zachary vibes. Hmm. I don't know how you've watched that twice. <laughs> Didn't you say you would watch Dear Zachary again? I, <laughs> that is true. Um, for those listening, Dear Zachary is a great documentary. Watch it. With a good support network. It'll crush your soul. It will crush your soul, but it is an extremely well done, beautiful documentary. Don't ever spoil it for anybody else. <laughs> no, do not. If you spoil Dear Zachary, you're dead to me. I would like to at least start out for the 96. For the 96. Uh, I've got like two pages of reactions. I just see a lot <laughs> of the word fuck. <laughs> uh, I was surprised at how many cops there were. Uh, I didn't realize there were that many cops at an event. Having been to a few Mariners games and Seahawks games, and there were a lot of police officers at this uh, event. Hundreds, yeah. Excuse That's me. why I was trying to emphasize, and I don't know if I really stressed it enough, how huge and important police presence and police leadership is during any football game in yeah. England. Seeing how many cops there were makes sense. They um, basically run the event. It was interesting how almost directly after seeing all the cops in the stadium and how many there were that one of the cops that they were interviewing after the fact, you know, like 20 years later, whenever this documentary was made, specifically then said that there was no talk of de-escalation 
that there was no talk of how they would handle an emergency situation from uh duck and fuck yes it was fucking field yes i was gonna say my first note is literally duck and field looks exactly how i thought he would <laughs> i already hate him <laughs> is my first note um my next note is I, I drew a diagram of how the pens were laid out based on the photographs including the barriers inside the pens and the fact that there were cages they called them crush cages mm. which i find fascinating so like you know that this is a possibility you know that a human crush is a possibility well, that's why they had crush bars in there they know it's a thing that happens right but the crush bars made it worse so your crush bars didn't work. Your crush pens didn't work because if anything, they wound up killing people. If there were no crush cages or pens or anything, they would right. have just spilled into the soccer game and they'd still be alive. Premier. The soccer game would have been fucked, but who gives a shit because they're still alive? <laughs> Look at any Premier League football stadium in the UK. There's no fences or barriers anywhere but, anymore. Honestly, it was the realization of the authorities in charge of these games that these aren't animals. No, we're not animals. I think a huge issue that I'm having even functioning or acknowledging the situation is I relate a little too well to it. Mm. And I would assume or think that you do and probably anybody who's ever been to a large sports event that they feel passionate about. Rugby, football, baseball, soccer, any event in your hometown that you feel passionate about. You're younger. You're a little tipsy. You're having a good time. At that age, we feel indestructible. And it is not our job as fans, as uh, guests of a location, to necessarily be concerned for our safety no matter what state we're in. Should I be less blacked out drunk? Probably yes. <laughs> Never. <laughs> like, when a guest shows up to your house and you consent to them showing up to your house, it is your job to then take care of them and ensure that they're okay. Obviously, if they try to violate your boundaries, or they try to steal from you, or they try to kill you... Shoot them in the dick. That's, that's different. You, sure. We're going to horror movie territory. But, right. like, in general, if they're just a guest who is kind of misbehaving or a little confused or drunk or under the influence of something, you give them a pillow and you put them on the couch and you put them to sleep. We do that literally last night. We literally do that. <laughs> we do that with most of our friends. If sure. humans are in trouble, you help them. I view large events like this. So there is a dominating factor that have decided to host an event and they're allowing and consenting to having guests in their space and it is their job to ensure that these guests are taken care of and they're safe. Absolutely. Whoever was in charge of this Hillsborough incident very obviously did not do their job. And I think that's why this... I was about to say this crushes me, and that's a horrible... Wow. Well, no, I meant heart crushing. Like, I, I didn't mean no, that as I a know. joke. That I, was, I know. Wow, okay. You're um, the worst. I know. <laughs> I think the reason this hits home so much is this just reminds me of us going to the Vegas Sevens in rugby and us going to a Mariners game and us going to, like, literally anything. Having a couple drinks beforehand and having fun and being with our friends and all of a sudden half our friends are dead. If you go to a sporting <laughs> event on a Saturday as a fan, most of the time you're having a bunch of drinks. It doesn't matter. You're having a good time watching your team. Yeah. So, I, I think... For, so, why is that a vilifying factor for these people? I'll go in a couple seconds. Next thought. Um, I find it very interesting how often people who ascribe themselves to being like safety professionals or individuals in charge or individuals. individuals in charge. I was going to say something more offensive and I caught myself. We're going to say individuals in tard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call me out like that. I find it very interesting how often safety professionals and people in charge cut corners and they claim that everything's okay and everything's fine because they have not seen otherwise. And that never catches up to him until something terrible happens. Well, and even then, if something terrible happens, they can claim the individual didn't take their advice or didn't take their training to heart, and they get let off with absolutely nothing. It's real. <laughs> uh, what they say in the documentary about people stating that this stadium was safe 
and good for crowd control mm. was extremely inaccurate. This is a symptom of the entire, I would say, safety community. Don't get me started on the fucking field. And I'm really glad that we called him that the entire time during the episode because I was like, oh, maybe I'm being too harsh. Now that I've watched that documentary, I should have been harsher. Yeah, Dookie Duck and Fuck. He's a piece of shit. If you're accepting the position that he is in, he understands that he might enter into a dramatic situation where it is literally his job to not freeze and to not go into shock and to not fuck the fuck up. And he needs to make some kind of decision, even if it's literally somebody telling him what to do because they have more experience than him. And he did not do that. This is his fucking fault. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I'm not going to fabricate a fucking trenching and excavation card and say I'm a TNE expert and then go into a fucking construction site and then somebody starts dying because I didn't trench correctly. And then I'm just going to like go into shock. I'm going to be like, hello, safety manager to my right. Please tell me exactly what to do right now because I'm terrified. <laughs> and I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to say exactly what they say because I'm not a fucking idiot. I'm not a piece of shit. I'm like Duck and Field. He just sat up there and then years later continued to try to cover his ass. The honorable thing would have been him admitting he was not set up for the job and that he made a mistake and make reparations to the victim's families and the victims. And he still did not do that. If you're in charge of something and you realize you're out of your element and have to cut out, the most powerful thing you can do as a leader is say, I can't handle this. I'm not a responsible leader right now. And then call in reinforcements. And he didn't. It's the best way you can By my handle notes, leadership. it took literally 10 years later for the victims to pay out of pocket for a court to even find him somewhat responsible. And it was still a hung jury. And he still didn't admit that he fucked up. That's why he's a fucked up piece of shit individual. If you're experiencing something and you're literally looking across a soccer field and you see 96 people being crushed to death, I could understand going into shock and just looking at you right and you're like, uh, Major Tom, I'm passing off all responsibility to you right now. I can't function. Fine. Great. I get that. I would probably do the same thing. I'd be freaked out. He didn't do any of that. Yeah. He just went into shock and then didn't do anything and let he, people he die. He was too proud to admit that he was out of his element. Or try to say sorry. That's a fucking issue. Um, my next thought was, the cops are on goddamn horses. The horses are very well trained and they're all calm despite the fact that many people are freaking out. So I was going to do a shout out to the horses. Oh, shouts to the crowd control horses. Yeah, yeah. They just... there's a lot of people who are screaming and freaking out, understandably. And these horses stay calm the entire time. I'm actually kind of curious, like weird things that no one else is probably thinking of. At what point did they dismount the horses and then go and put the horses somewhere else and then deal with the crushing? Because this all happened within like 30 minutes. Definitely under an hour, but I think the main events happened in like a 20, 30 minute span. Yeah. Also, they have horse trailers. You see them on the highway all the time. They do. They pull up in a horse trailer and then each horse has a specific officer. Sort of like canine dogs are usually paired. Yeah. And They probably put away immediately. The you're right, right. They've got their yeah. horse trailer, which is their safe space. And that's parked a few blocks away from the stadium. Hop up on them. They'll ride into where they have to do work. And the horse knows they're at work because they're very well trained. They're very Extremely. dedicated. It's exactly like police canine dogs. Well, they were actually helping keep humans upright. I noticed in the video, like they were riding the horses into the crowd yeah. as biological crush barriers. Yeah, and it was beautiful. At some point, when the, the when the mounted things. police part of the job is done. You know, they'll turn them around, they'll ride them back to their horse trail, they'll drop them off inside, mm -hmm. and then that police officer will be on foot. Yeah. But um, props to the fucking horses, yeah. Agreed. They were doing super good. I do have a random fun fact. It's not an unfun fact. Um, okay. That I left out, one of the offenses Liverpool fans were accused of doing okay. was uh, burning the horses with cigarettes. Yeah, there's no video of that, and that's not true. Well, okay, there's probably one cop who was out there with the horses in the crowd outside, and one fucking Liverpool fan was like, fuck this horse, and put a cigarette out on him. Yeah. 
but that became reported as Liverpool fans were burning the horses with cigarettes. Right, exactly. So that was one of the accusations. I also noticed about 28 minutes before kickoff, Mm. they're all going into pen three. uh, Three and four. Yeah. And there was no right or left access, which you do mention, but I didn't realize how exactly blatant it was that there was no ability to easily access the other pens outside of that tunnel. There was a spiked fence. Yeah. This is why I had to draw a diagram for myself, because I didn't understand when you were telling the story exactly how, like, it's literally a caged pen of, let's say, 20 by 20 feet, and I'm not saying that's accurate at all. I'd ballpark about 50 by 50 foot. Mm-hmm. It's a cage pen. The front is metal fencing. Mm. And then the top of it actually leans in kind of like prison fencing and has poked metal towards the crowd as they're standing in there to prevent them from climbing over it because it would obviously fucking hurt. Like spikes. Yeah. And then in between the pens is like a schoolyard fence, six foot tall, and there's no easy way to get from one to the other. So if somebody did not happen to notice the very dark tunnel to your right or left, as this entire crowd is pushing you forward, you wouldn't go into one of the surrounding pens. And that even before any of the crushing happens, the surrounding pens are, like, pretty much bare. People are hanging out. They're sitting down. There's, like, four or five feet of space between them. They're, like, basically half asleep. because Empty. Yeah. And at that point, people in the problematic pen are already pushing people over the barriers just to get into the other pens before the crush is even happening just to get people out of there. 28 minutes before the game even kicked off. And there were police watching this. This was the people who had gotten in with their tickets through the turnstiles the yes. normal way. Because it's six foot tall spiked fences. And so they're hoisting each other over the fences mm-hmm. because they already know it's too crowded. And there's a visible issue basically a half hour before the game even kicks off. Yeah. Anyways, at about 26 minutes, I noticed outside before they start opening the gates, the entire crowd just looks fluid. It looks like water and they're just flowing back and forth. And even then, before they're even let into the stadium or the pens, they're starting to, like, grab people, usually children, and they're just taking them out of the entire stadium. Hmm. I saw there was this one, like, maybe 12-year-old who they saw was stuck in kind of the miasma of the flow of the humans trying to get in. And this adult male and this cop just pull him over the fence and save him before anything happened. Well, that's why they were screaming to open the gates. Nobody died outside the stadium, but there were people passing out. It was a crush. Yes. At this point, you can tell there's an issue inside and outside of the stadium, and nothing is being done. And they decide to compound the issue exponentially by letting the issue outside become the issue inside. Right. And I was going to say, my next note is Superintendent Marshall, at this point, phones to Duck and Fucking Field, and Duck and Fucking Field says to open gate C and to relieve the crush. So at that point, 26 minutes before... The game's even started. He has recognized there is the potential for human crush. And the only move he makes is to open a gate. Mm. Other thing I thought was really interesting is uh, Professor Phil Scratton. He noted that previously, when the pens were really, like, full, that entire tunnel was closed during previous games. Yeah. And for some reason... Because when it got to capacity, the cops would close it because the guy up in the box would tell him to. Yes, and for some reason, this entire time, the tunnel was... Still open, hmm. despite the fact that it was over capacity. Obviously. There were no cops directing people elsewhere, despite the fact they had fucking tons of them. Hmm. My next line is, why would you put fucking spikes on a fucking crash barrier, you fucking pieces of shit? Uh, <laughs> this so is when I start getting angry. The cop who was there talking in the documentary said mm-hmm. that. He goes, and all I could think was, what a fucking stupid idea having a spiked fence. Yeah, so at this point in the documentary, we start to see people crawl on top of each other. They're trying to boost each other up. Hmm. Because they're trying to get crushed. And they can't necessarily get over the spike barrier because there's about a foot of spiked metal facing in towards the fans. 
And they also have cops telling them not to do so because you're not supposed mm-hmm. to get onto the field. You can see guys, they're taking their jackets mm-hmm. or their sweaters off. Mm-hmm. They're throwing them over the spikes mm-hmm. so they can then grab onto them and climb and over. And this entire time a professional soccer game is going on and nobody's stopping it or commenting on it. And the other side doesn't even know what's going on. And these fucking fans are basically about to die. Mm. And nobody gets it. And the cops are like, oh, don't well, climb over the, the fence. The other fans get it. The footage of the Liverpool fans who are on the terrace above reaching down and mm-hmm. like pulling people up. I did notice when the crush started to happen, the fans started to help each other, which I find so heartbreaking and fantastic. And the documentary points out that a lot of the police just stood there and did nothing. The police had no orders whatsoever. The guard tower had not told them anything. My assumption and my belief is they were probably in shock. And as a couple of the police officers who were on the documentary, which I thought was really cool. The documentary does have a couple police officers describing their experience that day and the trauma of that day. It was so terrifying and traumatizing. You realize the police officers are just human and they're put in a situation that they never thought they'd be put in and they weren't prepared for that day. And they weren't given any instructions. Yes. And they were given no instructions. And the second this starts happening, a lot of the Liverpool fans, instead of fight or flight, they go into fight and save. Yeah, there's no flight with football fans. <laughs> no, and they, they were, it was as much as I was sobbing about how terrifying it was to watch, a lot of my crying was also how proud I was of just like the human experience of people saving each other. It was really cool to watch how many people blatantly did not listen to the police officers who were yelling like, oh, you can't break this barrier. And these like 16 people, male and female, all probably ages 15 to 25, maybe, bodily throwing themselves at this chain link fence to break it down so then people could pour out like fucking soup so they wouldn't die. And like these police officers are threatening them because as far as I know, they're doing their job and they ignore it just to try to save these humans. And then you have these other people who are getting on top of each other's shoulders in hopes that people from the other side of the crush barrier are going to bring each other over and they start trying to like drag them over. And at the entire time, some of these poor officers who weren't prepared for this are just standing there in shock being like, I don't even know what to do. I'm a 20 year old Bobby. <laughs> like I'm a, I'm a police officer. <laughs> like I didn't expect to see this today when I woke up. I wasn't trained. I'm looking at 80 dead bodies. And I'm not getting any instruction. Yeah. What do I do? I'm terrified. That's traumatizing to the police officers and the people in the situation. It's just, I felt bad for both sides, but I just noticed there was a lot of police officers standing there in shock, not knowing what to do because they were given no direction. Well, there aren't really sides in this thing. There's There's just people who have found themselves in this situation. There are sides. There is... Everyone else who's good, and there's Duckenfield, who's a piece of shit. The minor police and the Liverpool fans, none of them were at fault. No, they they just just found themselves here. Yeah, they were just stuck in a situation that they tried to survive and tried to figure out, and it wasn't their fault, and it wasn't the police officer's fault. It was everyone who organized this event. Mm. I cried equal amounts between watching the tragedy, watching the victims' families, and hearing from them, and hearing from the police officers who experienced that entire event. That was traumatizing for all of them. I would say once shit started to break down and there was no leadership, Mm -hmm. they just became a group of people in this situation. Agreed. And more lives were saved by Liverpool fans that day than by the police purely because there were more of them. Yes, logistically. Because as soon as there was no police leadership and these cops were just sort of wandering around on their own, and then the fans were realizing that nobody was going to help them but themselves, they're tearing billboards down, putting bodies on stretchers, some alive, some dead, and it's just sort of a random mix of cops and just fans. I've been in crisis situations. Like, I've been in situations where there's fight-or-flight response 
there is honor in running away, and there is a survival skill in running away, and I completely respect that. But you well, can especially tell... in a human crush, run away. Right, yeah, please run away. Yeah. Get away from the rest <laughs> exactly, of the people. Exactly. <laughs> but I've been in survival situations where you see that there are people who, at their own risk, they just step up. But there's four of them, and there's 400 fans. Mm. So the best thing they could do, honestly, is step away and lead. Mm-hmm. One of the um, guys that was interviewed in the documentary, he tried to save one guy, and he returned to the scene, and then just started directing people. You could make effect on one person, or you could tell five people how to affect 20 different people. That was the one that I found really interesting, is the guy in the documentary. He literally crawled over into Pen 2, and then started coordinating other fans in Pen 2 how to get Pen 3 people out. Right. There's live video of him directing people on the safest way to get the fans out of there. That's... There were heroes on the day. There was no leadership, but there were heroes. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm going to try to run through a couple of my notes. What the ever-loving the... fuck is the Duckfield shit doing? <laughs> what the ever-loving fuck is the Duckfield shit doing is, yeah. is what you wrote? Literally. The answer is nothing. And then Duck and Field immediately blamed fans. He is a giant piece of pedophile shit. He doesn't deserve to live. <laughs> I was mad. I was going to say dog shit. I was like, but I like dogs. I was going to be like, oh, cat shit. I was like, but I like cats. So I went with pedophile shit. Pedophile shit. Because I don't like pedophiles. For the record, there's no proof duck and fuck is a pedophile. No, no, he's not a pedophile. Just similar to the feces of a pedophile because I was upset. Um... (laughs) She mad. It gets worse. One of the police officers who was interviewed for this documentary also noted that usually they have a declaration of emergency. And at some point you declare that something is an emergency and then you follow the plan and they did not have one. I found that fascinating. Um, okay, 12 people made it to the hospital. The other 84 bodies were just stacked in the gymnasium. Evidently, the families were then told to bus out to Hillsborough, and they held them for hours in a boys' club to wait to see if their family were alive or not, because they didn't know at this point. The police then took Polaroid snapshots of all the bodies in the gymnasium, and then they stuck those Polaroids... To a corkboard. To a corkboard. They bust all of the families over there to the gymnasium, and they showed them the corkboard one by one. And if they could identify one of the Polaroid pictures as their dead family member, they then brought them in to the gymnasium to identify the body. Profoundly traumatic. <laughs> that's so fucked up. Like, that's, that is inexcusable. You were traumatizing the victim's families. This is a corpse Polaroid that you took 20 minutes ago. Dead bodies who are crushed, most likely barely resemble the people that you knew alive six hours ago. And they have to look at their child or their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their husband or their daughter or whatever. And they look at this and they're like, oh yeah, that kind of looks like my loved one. And they unzip one body amongst the 84 dead bodies. And like, oh, is this your kid? Is this your loved one? That is fucking traumatizing. I think that was the best option they had, though, because there wasn't the, really good leadership at that point. Well, that's the issue. The, <laughs> this is literally, this entire fucking phenomena could be called lack of leadership fucks everybody up. Truth. It, literally, my next note is the inability of people in power slash in charge to take responsibility and continuing to rape the victim's families blows my mind. That's my note. It's a good note. Because that's exactly what it is. I'm not blaming the police officers who were told to take Polaroids and were told to show these families, but the people involved and in charge of this entire thing, fucked up. They shouldn't have any victims. And if they did have victims, they should not continually traumatize the families of these victims. Let alone, as we find out, extend this entire event out 20 years later. At this point, it's 31 years later. It's still an ongoing thing. I thought it was bullshit that the police, when they were making their false reports, that they were pissed on. 
Are you fucking kidding me? Who has the time during a human crush to pull down their pants and piss on another individual, let alone check their police officer first? Yeah, super implausible. The thing I think I find strikes me so much about this one is because it was a UK semi-final match, the entire thing is on video. Mm-hmm. And there were dozens of reporters there, and there are so many photographs. There is so much visual evidence of exactly what happened. And it was so easily deniable by a couple of headlines. Because one individual said, this is drunk fans, and then everything went downhill from there. Yep. That's it. Problem. I'm not going to be nice about this. This one guy pissed on the memories and the lives of these 96 people who died because of his inadequacy as a man and as an officer. He's a piece of shit. I cannot imagine what these families have gone through since 1989. That's our entire lives. Yeah. With people saying it was their fault for something that had nothing to do with them. And it was all the fault of people who designed that entire fucking stadium and the police. Yep. Anyways, Graham Games, a scientist who helped discover a lot of the science behind, like... He exposed the numbers that the stadium was under capacity at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was all a crowd control issue. Yeah. So shout out to Graham Games. Uh, Counting them turnstiles. Fuck yeah. Also shout out Lord Justice Taylor. Trying to be a good guy and trying to be as accurate as he knew with the information you had. Kudos to him for at least trying. Taylor at least absolved the fans. Mm-hmm. And nobody really paid attention because the headlines had already been out for a year or two at that point. Uh, I was also going to say Professor Scratton. Uh, he Scranton. mentioned a couple times that there were quite a few families related to Hillsborough that had suicides and just due to addiction. The same is true of any major traumatic incident. Um, and then I wanted to shout out Martin McLaughlin, who was a police officer, who was one of the guys who came forward with information to actually help out the victims' families. Mm. Um, my next note is the consistent rape of the victims and their families to make two to three assholes look better is unconscionable. Completely. That's an issue to me. Yeah. Uh, my next note was I dot hate dot humans. Uh, i'm upset and i am drunk that's about where i'm at (laughs) no that's yeah that's it we just watched the documentary long john baldry in the shadow of the blues released in 2000 (laughs) good god damn it are you okay i have so many allergies right now Long John Baldry in the Shed of the Blues, released in 2000. Director was Nick Orchard. Writer, Paul Myers. Really cool documentary. Um, I have never heard of this guy before. Well, before, you know, last week when you talked about him. I asked when you first started talking about this guy, just because he was a British man playing blues in the era that he was. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, did he know Clapton, who also was a blues fan in the same general area in the same time? He didn't know Clapton. Clapton knew him. Right, because Clapton went to his show. They talked about that in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. He watched Long John Baldry, and that was the first moment he goes, oh, I can do this. Mm -hmm. Or rather, oh, I can do this? (laughs) (laughs) Thought that was very cool. I also thought it was very interesting. They talked about how black American blues musicians would not get played on the radio in America 
because mm-hmm. they were, you know, presumably because they were black. Their 45s would get distributed around the South. They'd make a little name for themselves, but they wouldn't get to this American pop superstardom. And then you had to smuggle them into po- Britain. Right. They would smuggle in these 45 vinyl records, and then white British guys would listen to them, and then they would go, this is awesome, and go play that music at the clubs, and then those bands would then get signed back to American labels, mm-hmm. even though the creators of this music were in their fucking backyard. So the whole Beatlemania thing and... Shit, Rolling Stones, like all these British bands that came over to America at the time were basically playing American black blues. But instead of going directly to the black man in their backyard, they would wait until a British white guy was like, mm-hmm. I can play and sing like this because I've studied it for years. Not that it's like the British guy's fault. As long as he doesn't admit to the world at large that he's gay. Right, right, right. Is right, denying right. 98 As long as he was a straight white man. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say is that I loved Long John Baldry in the streets of London walking around talking to the TV cameras and reporters. Mm-hmm. I wrote down John Cleese. Yes. Because he has John that Cleese. whole... And here we are at the Ministry of Defense. <laughs> Look at these fellows. back on the day. He's a very sort of mm-hmm. boisterous mm-hmm. British taking the piss. I love that. He's such a funny fucking guy in person. And that's the thing that I have a hard time with my stories. You can't exactly tell how amazing a person is. By trying to tell their story. Exactly, yeah. I I can tell his story and you've never seen his idiosyncrasies and you've never seen him on video or you've never heard him. And so I'm glad that you wanted to watch the documentary with me because it's such a better view of who he is as an individual. And it's hard to represent that. You said a lot about his accomplishments and who he know and what kind of songs he played. But you can't get to know a person without seeing them. I appreciate that you were at least engaged in the story that I told. Very much so, but I didn't know the man. Yeah. I mean, before I started telling my story, that you'd only heard one song from him. I only knew. And didn't even know that was him. (laughs) Don't lay no boogie woogie on the Mm -hmm. king of rock and roll. That's all I knew. Exactly. Thank you. That's what I'm saying. I'm glad you like him. I do. It was much... Less depressing things. So many story. less dead bodies, right? There was literally one death in that whole documentary. <laughs> and it was at the end. <laughs> it was the death the person that we were talking about. Um, it was kind of peaceful. Also, I had no idea there were annual Beatles specials. But I want to watch them now. Because I knew they were like BBC Beatles 1960 whatever, the television program. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was just like them fake playing their instruments. I didn't realize they were bringing in other local British rock and roll and blues musicians. Yeah. I want to look those up. I want to download those and watch them. They sound amazing. 60s British musicians who nobody's ever heard of that the Beatles are putting on TV. Mm -hmm. I also want to repeat my favorite quote from the entire special, which is Rod Stewart trying to politely, most Britishly insinuate that Long John Baldry was a homosexual. Mm -hmm. You know, which he was, and he wasn't quiet about it either. He was open about it with his friends, and he was open about it publicly when it was legal to do so, which is fucked up that it was illegal still into the 1970s. Well, yeah, the fact that being gay was ever illegal is dumb and Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But I thought it was fucking hilarious that Rod Stewart was trying to say, oh, we all knew he was gay. And instead of saying that, he said, well, we all had a feeling that he leaned toward the lavender. (laughs) It's like such a weird euphemism. It's more complimentary than like a lot of euphemisms I have heard. Definitely. I've always enjoyed Rod Stewart's earlier work. It's more rock and roll stuff. I definitely have disliked his later stuff. I appreciate where he started, though. I do. After learning about Long John Baldry, I appreciate him much more as a person than I did previously because I do like his pre-pop music. I don't really like a lot of his like, I'm gonna make money. 
I don't consider him an artist when he did that. Um, well, no, I mean, you're still an artist, but at some point you get older and you're doing it to support your family rather than for mm-hmm. the passion of it. I mean, that happened to you too. It happened to Billy Idol. Agreed. Um, I also wrote down that I didn't realize that I know so many Long John Baldry songs. His covers and his originals, mm-hmm. because I heard them on the radio growing up all the time. I didn't realize they were all the same guy. I didn't realize his connections or his story or where he was from or anything. Yeah. I'm a big music nerd, music history kind of fucking guy. And I didn't realize how much of an impact this guy had or how much of his shit I already knew tangentially. So what actually made me have an appreciation for Long John Baldry is that after his music career failed you know, the first time of many... He moved to a small cottage in the countryside and adopted a goat. You know what I mean? (laughs) After the world beat him down, he was like, I just want to live in a small cottage in a rural area and adopt a goat. With his husband. That makes so much fucking sense to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my last note is all in capitals. Dr. Robotnik. He was Dr. (laughs) Robotnik in Sonic. He was the evil voice of Dr. Robotnik. (laughs) Mind blown. Well, that's all I have. Interesting documentary about... People avoiding the truth. We don't have to do a cool story, bro. <clears throat> Interesting documentary about people who fail to do their jobs and therefore people die and they're still never held responsible for it 20 years later and they suck and fucking feel as a piece of shit. Cool story, bro. Unreasonably tall and attractive gay <laughs> British man playing dank blues music nobody else is paying attention to, inspiring the rock careers of many of our greatest musicians, ending up in Canada. As a large gay man, just strutting his stuff till the day he died. Cool story, bro. It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, tiny bro dog. Yeah. After this, do you want to put on like a really cool live music concert and just dance around like dummies? (laughs) I love you so much. Cheers.